0: Hello everyone, this is Heath with the Music Technology Teacher Network, www.mutechteachernet.com. Welcome to the podcast, Mutech Teacher Talk. I'm really excited about today's guest, Dr. Jason Freeman is a professor of music at Georgia Tech and chair of the School of Music. His artistic practice and scholarly research focuses on using technology to engage diverse audiences in collaborative, experimental, and accessible musical experiences. He also develops educational interventions in K-12 and university environments, That broaden and increase engagement in STEM disciplines through authentic integrations of music and computing. He is a co-creator of EarSketch, a free online platform that teaches coding concepts through music composition, sequencing, and remixing. His music has been performed at Carnegie Hall, exhibited at ACM SIGGRAPH, published by Universal Edition, broadcast on Public Radio's Performance Today, and commissioned through support from the National Endowment for the Arts. Freeman's wide-ranging work has attracted over $10 million in funding from sources such as the National Science Foundation, Google, and Turbulence. His research has been disseminated through over 80 refereed book chapters, journal articles, and conference publications. Dr. Freeman received his B.A. in music from Yale University and his M.A. and D.M.A. in composition from Columbia University. I hope you enjoy the conversation I have with today's guest, Dr. Jason Freeman. Good morning, Dr. Freeman. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here, Heath. Great. Well, I'm really excited about the conversation, and I have so many questions. So we'll just see how many we get to. But before we talk a little bit about kind of your background and and musical experience, it may be helpful to get a bit of an explanation of the music technology program at Georgia Tech, because when most people think about music technology, I don't think they necessarily go to what's happening at Georgia Tech. So can you just give me sort of a general overview of the music technology program at Georgia Tech and kind of what you are trying to accomplish with students as far as your
1: angle on music technology? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I see music technology as really being three- interrelated things a uh, creative practice a scientific research practice and an applied engineering practice so let me explain what i i think all three of those mean because what we do at georgia tech is really the combination of these three aspects of music technology so music technology is a creative practice is really probably what most people think of the the stereotype in their mind of what music technology is. So using tools, whether you're working in a recording studio or on a laptop or a mobile phone, however it might be to create, perform, produce music through technology. Um, So the the most typical example would be sitting in a recording studio using Pro Tools or Logic or something like that, uh, recording an album. Uh, Lots of other things, too, that might come out of that, but anything that we're doing to create music with technology really kind of falls in, in that bin. The the second bin here is scientific research. And so that could be things that are designed to generate new knowledge about music or about music technology as a a field. So examples could be conducting psychology experiments that gives us, us new insights into how people hear and understand music. Or putting musicians into an MRI machine and looking at how their brains are actually activating as they're making different kinds of music or doing different kinds of musical activities. Or it could be developing like a new AI algorithm for a computer that uh, you know that moves beyond whatever the current state of the art is in how computers synthesize sound or how they analyze audio or or how they compose or generate music something like that so that all falls under that scientific research bin and then the applied engineering bin is less focused about generating new kind of fund, fundamental knowledge and more about kind of driving more near-term innovation in the music industry so what are new kinds of products we can create new instruments we can develop new uh, services we can provide new techniques we can develop that will enable people to do something different in how we create perform compose learn about music share music distribute music all those different kinds of things and so, so that has a much more kind of near-term goal about going through an engineering process to design, implement, and evaluate something new uh, that has an uh, an opportunity to impact the music industry or, or more generally, how we, how we engage with music. So at Georgia Tech, we really bring all these things together in the courses that our students take, in the uh, projects that they pursue, and the careers that they pursue after they graduate. We have bachelor's degree, master's degree, and a uh, PhD degree, all in music technology. Uh, we have about 120 students across all those degrees. Uh, they have all different kinds of experience in music, all different kinds of experience in STEM uh, when they come into our programs. You know, Some of them are computer scientists and electrical engineers. Some of them uh, have very traditional background in music. Most of them have some combination of all of these different kinds of things. And uh, when they graduate from our programs they pursue careers in all kinds of areas uh, we have alums that work at uh, companies in the automotive audio space designing testing evaluating sound systems for your cars or looking at how to do active noise reduction in cars to reduce engine noise or all kinds of different things like that looking how to imagine the next generation of automobiles uh, when we don't have to drive them anymore um, what does entertainment in the car look like uh, we have students that look work at big tech companies that are doing audio analysis behind voice assistants or who are working on consumer-facing audio projects like streaming music services and music recommendation for those services uh, or professional audio tools uh, that that people use in studios or on their laptops. We have students that work at uh, specialized companies that are really focused on the music industry Um, developing new hardware uh, and software uh, programs that, um, you know, that we all use in our our practice every day. And then we have students that are really more in research and development roles, working on new ways, especially that artificial intelligence can be used to generate music recommendations, to do music analysis, or to to generate music or collaborate with humans to, to make music together.
0: Well, I'm trying to think the first exposure maybe I had to the Uh, Music technology program there at Georgia Tech was when I attended the, what's called the Guthman competition. And hopefully through the conversation, we'll kind of circle back to that. But that was, I think, the first thing. And then not long after that, uh, I had an opportunity. I was on uh, uh, campus for an event with my daughter uh, at the music building. And I ran into Chris Moore, who is the director of bands at Georgia Tech uh, and works with different facets of music technology. And And he took me down to the lab and we walked in and he was showing me, first of all, it made me feel much better about my own desk at work because it was there were stuff just everywhere. And I thought, well, yeah, it must be a sign of high intelligence to have uh, a somewhat unkept, what well, seems to be unorganized. But <laughs> he began showing me around the lab and and telling me a little bit about some of the the projects that they were working on, and my mind was blown. Uh, I felt like uh, we were walking somewhere in between science fiction and fantasy uh, with, with some of the, the things that, that were happening. And again, we're going to get back and talk about some of those, spe- uh, hopefully specifically. But now that we kind of have that overview, I have this burning question to ask because as I go and look uh, and read over uh, your biography and background, you have music degrees from Yale and Columbia. And are a noted composer of music. So my question is, how did you kind of end up in this space at Georgia Tech? Because those things seem to be somewhat incongruent, but, you know, here you are. So how did that kind of leap happen from what many may consider a quote-unquote traditional music training to what you're doing now at Georgia Tech with music technology?
1: So I think that I was always doing both of these things, making music in traditional ways and trying to find ways to make music with computers, really my my whole life. It really goes back to when I was a young child and my my family got our first personal computer. This was in the the early 1980s. It was an Apple II. And I started writing programs uh, for it in the, the basic programming language. Uh, we would get a magazine in the mail every month that had like all these sample programs that you could type in and you would learn a little bit about how to, how to, how the computer worked and and how to program it by typing these in and then, you know, changing little things and and varying them and so on. So that's how I first kind of learned how to program a computer. And some of those programs would make music. It was an awful thing. It was like this monophonic music with a square wave coming out of a speaker. I think at one point there was this, uh, a uh, lightning storm. I grew up in Florida. So every summer there were lightning storms like every day and, and a power surge went through our house and fried this computer, this poor little Apple II computer. And I think it got fixed after that, but the sound never, for a long time, the sound never worked quite right again. And it came out just as like noise instead of the square wave. I, I, I don't know quite why, but, but I was entranced by this idea that you could write code and, and music could come out from this, this early age. Um, and you know, and as I grew older and as technology uh, evolved, I started getting some experience using MIDI sequencers and and other things like that uh, to make music as well. And then and then eventually, this idea of programming for musical interaction. So it's not just writing a series of of lines in a programming language that spit out the same piece of music every time, but you can actually create something that that responds to user input or responds to the environment in some way and and, and does something. And so, um, you know, as I was learning to play musical instruments, uh, uh, piano and then saxophone were, were, were my instruments growing up, um, I was at the same time learning about using technology to make music. Uh, I got to, to college and uh, decided that, you know, a career in music was, was not for me, that that was not the, the smart, practical thing to do. And I decided to major in computer science. And uh, I was still really engaged as a musician. I was composing, I was performing, I was doing all this stuff, but really kind of as a secondary activity uh, with my computer science coursework being the the core thing. And um, about halfway through college, I got what was at the time is really coveted summer internship at a big technology company. And I thought my, my, my life was made. I had this great internship. I was going to go work there after I graduated. And I, I had the most miserable summer of my life. It was so boring. Everybody was just kind of looking at the stock price and when their, you know, when their options would vest. Um, not interns, obviously, but the full-time employees there. And, um, and the work was just not interesting. And I realized that, that really my, my interest in computing was so deeply connected to, to what I was doing with it. It was not this abstract interest, um, to, you know, come up with a new algorithm or make a new you know product for a tech company. It was very much about using technology to drive creativity and, and specifically music. And so, um, I really, I, I pivoted at that point. I got back to college junior year. I switched my major from computer science to music. And, uh, and then I ended up going to graduate school in music and it really wasn't until graduate school where I, I, I you know, Columbia has a, has a really uh, critical role in the history of electronic music in this country. Uh, it was the first university to have uh, a center for electronic music research back in the 1950s. It was actually Columbia and Princeton didn't have the resources, either of them on their own, to buy this giant, giant synthesizer, you know, the size of, of a room. So they formed a center together. It was in New York City on the Columbia campus. Um, called the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center. When I was there, it was called the Columbia uh, Computer Music Center. It had had evolved um, a long time since the 50s. But um, really found an environment there where people um, uh, encouraged me to try to find new ways that bringing computing and and my music composition practice together um, would have meaning for me. And, And I really found that around musical interactivity. Um, uh, musical interaction using technology as a way to bring people together to make music uh, together in ways that they might not have otherwise and and so that became an increasing focus of mine as a graduate student so I had this opportunity almost twenty years ago to join the faculty at Georgia Tech when they were just starting a program in music technology and really to help shape it and, and be a part of it from almost from the beginning and Georgia Tech has been this incredible place for me to be because there's so many amazing, smart people around uh, faculty and students uh, who are really creative and talented as musicians and have incredible uh, technical knowledge that they bring to their work as well. So I've learned so much from the people around me over the years and really, you know, discovered a variety of of new interests that I didn't know existed for me before I before I came to tech In, in addition to carrying forward. Uh, some of the interests I've had in composition and and musical interaction technology uh, all along.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask about that you've said a couple of times, and it's become a pet peeve of mine. When I talk to people in the technology world and they refer to, not that you did this, but they refer to musicians as these creative, uh, you know, talented, creative, creative artists and then when I talk to other people from outside the technology world and they're referring to, you know, technologists, they tend to refer to them or think about them in terms of, of skill, you know, a learned set of skills that they have to know. And my pet peeve is, you know, to be a really good musician, it takes a lot of time where you have to work to build skill in order to be creative with your instrument. And vice versa on the technology side that, yes, you do have to have this knowledge and skills, but Mm -hmm. that creative piece is so important, particularly when you're thinking about, you know, engineering and developing new things that on both sides, it both require skill and creativity. So have you run into that somewhat or or how do y'all? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a narrative in the world of music technology which is very alluring but also a little bit dangerous about the the ways that technology democratizes access to music making. And you know, anyone with a Macintosh computer has GarageBand sitting on it, right? And they can open it up and start making and recording music. And we have all these apps you can download on your phone that, you know, that create these these high-level interfaces that you can learn very quickly to start making music expressively, even if you've never learned an instrument. And if you take that to an extreme, it could be misinterpreted to mean that nobody needs that musical skill anymore because the technology is taking care of the skill, and we just need the the expression, the creativity. And and you and I both know that's obviously not true, right? Um, I think I think what technology has done for us in this space is create, uh, an incredible way that, that people can have a kind of a low stakes engagement with music making and experience what it's like to be creative. Uh, but like any field, like walking up to a piano, anyone can play "Hard and soul or Mary had a little lamb or something. Right. But, um, not everyone can play Rachmaninoff. And so there's obviously this idea that there's a we talk a lot about the idea that there's a low floor to entry to things, but also a high ceiling to what you can do um, that rewards uh, practice uh, and development over time and encourages the, the, the development of virtuosity. Uh, and and that, that is just as true with technology as it is with, with any acoustic musical instrument. What I think technology can do, again, is, is, is lower that floor to entry to help motivate and engage particularly students at a point where, you know, the 10,000 hours of practice when you're on hour one and two hour, you know, or hour a hundred or hour 500, sometimes there can be a, it can be a challenge to keep going. And I think technology can help show us kind of what might be possible at the other end, uh, and help guide us along the way to, you know, to encourage that skill development. So I think there's a, there's a connection between the two of them on the, on the coding side, Uh, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, that sometimes it's equated with skill and not with creativity. Coding is an incredibly creative activity. And actually the practice of live coding, I think is a a perfect example of that. Uh, So there's a lot of musicians in this kind of fringe activity that actually get up in clubs and concert halls, project their screens so that everybody can see what they're doing. Start with a blank code window and start writing code while people are watching them to generate the music in real time that people are watching. And, um, I mean, it's an incredibly nerdy and geeky activity. I'm not sure that it's ever going to be this mainstream thing that everyone goes and sees on a Saturday night. But, but what's incredible to me about it is it's taking this practice that's normally this hidden kind of almost secretive thing that people do. Um, you know, code is not generally what we, we look at. We see the results of what code enables. But by, by foregrounding this practice of code and, and turning that into an act of improvisation and the writing of code is this this, you know, this very creative activity um, to make music it's something that um, that really makes us think about the role of coding in our society in a very different way the other point i'll make on, on the coding side is that we see with the the rise of ai tools that the entry-level positions to you know to to be software engineers i don't know what the future of those those roles might be um you know the very basic you know let me write some code to get you know to get something done i don't know that that will be necessary in five years or you know or five months even the the question for me is you know when those kinds of roles in 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 writing code are no longer necessary because an AI is taking care of them the ones that are still necessary are are ones that are going to require much more creativity as well and kind of thinking about how do we how do we design new architectures how do we take new approaches uh, to how we how we work with computers how we design algorithms to push forward to whatever the next big set of innovations is going to be. You you mentioned
0: earlier that you you came to Georgia Tech almost 20 years ago. So that would have been the early 2000s, right around the turn of the century, which uh, when you think back to that, the late 90s was the rise of Napster. And then I think it was right around 2001 was when Apple first introduced the iPod and a few years later, came along the uh, the iTunes Store, so there was a lot changing in the music world in the uh, that time period, the early 2000s. So when you got to Georgia Tech, and you mentioned that this was almost from the beginning of the music technology program, when you think back to that and to where we are now, how has that technology changed and evolved? Uh, Since you got there at Georgia Tech, when you think about maybe what you were working on then and probably actually created or discovered new sort of pathways to go down to develop and move technology
1: along to where you are now. So how's that changed in 20 years? I, I think one of the premises behind our program was an assumption that traditional music technology careers were going away. That it was going to be harder and harder to get a job working in a recording studio, doing live sound, things like that, uh, because the industry was moving away from working in studios and more towards working on a laptop or, or later, you know, even on a phone. And so our, our goal was to prepare students not to use, not just to use the technology that was out of, at that time to make music. But to create the next generation of technology that was going to continue this, this transformation. I think that we've overestimated in some ways that that prediction. Uh, certainly there's a ton more work happening on people's laptops than there was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And we're recording this podcast over a network using a cloud-based doll, you know, and we're both on our laptops. So so clearly that's true. I think that there's still a thriving industry for recording studios, uh, that, uh, you know, that clearly has not disappeared. Uh, that need is still very much there, um, to have somebody in the room with you with an expert set of years and experience to really take, um, take what you're doing to, to another level. So I think, yeah, I think we partially got that right, but not entirely. I think what we're seeing now that we didn't really predict was how much AI was going to Replace some of the things that uh, that people are being trained to do, so yeah. You know, so as an example, you know one thing we were talking about twenty years ago we're still talking about today you know autotune right so so autotune uh, has obviously had a, a huge impact on how we record music uh, and a number of other tools that you know that that normalize things to to a timing grid and you know whatever else uh, these have become standard tools in in our toolbox as engineers, we use it when it makes sense or when we need to fix something or when, when there's an artistic goal that we're trying to achieve through through a particular technology or, or, or plugin. And, and these things are around for good. What I wasn't anticipating maybe, you know, maybe one of the earliest tools to suggest this was something like Lander, where you can upload your mix to the cloud and then outcome something that's been mastered for you. So, uh, so now... Rather than a mastering engineer going in and doing something there is a there's a, an AI tool that's doing the mastering for you and it certainly doesn't do it as well as you know as an elite mastering engineer would but similar to the way that we were looking at recording studios as being something that were expensive that were not accessible to everybody in a laptop you know running garageband or, or whatever it was um, I think this is going another level that the expertise of an experienced engineer is not accessible to everybody, but, um, but the AI tool that, you know, that does its best to imitate it is. And so I, I think that's, you know, that was the beginning of another path and another evolution that we're going down uh, that we didn't anticipate as much. We, I think we saw the role of AI in musical interaction, um, but not you know, music recommendation and things like that, but maybe not so much in all these other aspects of the industry.
0: The other thing I wanted to ask about, because I th- hopefully I'm going to be able to connect the circle uh, to bring all this back uh, together, but one of the things I think fairly early on that you were involved, uh, highly involved with developing was the EarSketch platform. I, I wanted to know a little bit about the goals for that when it was set up, but also how it Kind of relates and ties in to I think your your interest in being able to create ways for people to have access to learning these kind of of different skills. So tell me a little bit about uh, you know how EarSketch came about and, and and what goals you're trying to achieve with that.
1: Sure. So so EarSketch, uh, my colleague Brian McGurko and I started developing it around. 2011 I think or 2012 somewhere in there and it really started from the fact that we we wanted to work on a project together and and the initial idea was awful and I'm really glad we didn't do it it was this idea that we were going to teach music theory through this in collaborative online environment where students would draw like little squiggles that would turn into music and then they would comment on them and modify them over time and you know kind of connect them to music theory principles and general music classes um, it was a bad idea. It didn't ever happen. Um, that's, that's where the name ear sketch came from. Cause originally there was going to be this sketching involved. Um, but then kind of out of the rubble of that idea came this other idea that, um, computer science education was being taught in this really boring abstract way where, um, students weren't connecting with it because, you know, it's like, well, how do I, you know, how do I concatenate two strings together? So you type in, you know, Heath, and then you type in Jones, and then you spit out Heath Jones with the space in the middle. Yay, super exciting. Uh, so so um, we really wanted to, to to ground it in something that was fundamentally creative. We saw this you know, kind of universal appeal of music, and felt like if we created an environment that felt real to students, it felt like it was a real music production environment that was using real music samples and genres that students liked, real music uh real coding languages that were used in the industry if we kind of put all that together um that students would find this ability to make music through code really captivating and that would drive them to pursue further studies um in computer science and and a lot of our funding for this work has come from the national science foundation and so their their interest has really been in computer science education so how can we um how can we use music as this hook to drive engagement in computer science learning so that we're broadening participation in the field of computer science? Um, you know, one thing you may notice is that both music technology and computer science are fields that uh, historically have, have somewhat lacked in diversity. Uh, and so, um, strangely enough, bringing them together in this way, our research has shown, has actually been a really important driver for engaging students um, from all backgrounds in uh, you know, in computer science education, and so uh, you know, this started off very small with one summer camp, one collaboration with a, a school in, uh, in Gwinnett County, and we built a prototype version of your sketch uh, on top of an existing digital audio workstation, a program called Reaper, and and we saw this kind of immediate kind of you know almost magic coming from this in our studies. Um, word of mouth started to spread; other people were interested. We eventually ported it into a web application around 2014, 2015, and we've really just been working to grow it ever since and to understand better about where it can be successful and why it is successful. Um, So we've developed a variety of different curricula around this, Um, we've added a lot of different things into the platform uh, in different ways, and uh, um, there's always kind of a new new opportunity to explore.
0: Yeah, and one of the things you mentioned throughout the the technology digital industry there there's been a recognized need to diversify the workforce because it is a creative field and particularly with uh, you know digital products they are typically there is a team of people uh, you know you're not working in isolation but you're working with groups and if you have a group of people that have a very similar cultural and Mm -hmm. uh, social background and experience, you're not necessarily going to get a very diverse set of ideas. Whereas if you do have a diverse group that are all bringing different backgrounds, different life experiences, you're going to generate uh, a a greater variety of ideas. Um, So I think that's really
1: important. And Yeah. Let let me just jump in because this reminds me of something that I think relates to so a lot of this that we've been talking about also connects back to this uh, skill versus creativity uh, discussion that we were having earlier. So there was a there was a research study and I think it was in Nature, you know, this, this big scientific journal, five seven years ago, that uh, uh, was that was tracking. I think it was focused on. Gender diversity, so so gender balance in different fields at the at the doctoral level, so so people studying PhDs and comparing that to people's perceptions that to be successful in that field you had to be a genius, and so we found fields like music composition, for example, but also computer science or astrophysics or philosophy, things like this. Um, so so uh, fields you wouldn't necessarily normally kind of clump together had the worst uh you know the the greatest imbalance between male and female students pursuing PhDs and um and these are ones where people had this 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 kind of you know kind of clung to this mythology that you had to be kind of an innate genius in this field in order to be successful um which you and I know is not true you know you have to put in the time you have to develop the skills you have to practice and that's as much true in philosophy I'm sure I don't know that much about philosophy, but that's, that's as much true in philosophy as it is in composition, as it is in, in computer science. But because this myth kind of exists, um, it discourages people from going into this field that feel like they don't come from a background or they can't identify with people already in the field that um, you know um, they would qualify them to, to to kind of have this innate talent uh, or you know or innate genius or, or or whatever. And so I, I think that. What you're talking about here, about how we talk about these fields in terms of skill and creativity is really important, but also the way that we introduce students to the disciplines, the, the examples that we share to them of people who are practicing and what their journeys were like uh, to get to where they are uh, and the, the, the activities that we give them to do, the more that we can show them that you know, the, these fields are accessible, that people can step in Um, They have that low floor, so you can do something really interesting very quickly. But then also there's this reward for continued work and practice, putting in the time and and to show them that pathway for where that gets them, I think is really important.
0: As we were talking about this, one of the things that, you know, I was thinking of because I, you know, I can remember in the early eighties, I was born in 1971. So, you know, I can remember in the early eighties, you know, the Commodore 64, Uh you know, the, which I believe still holds the record as the most commercially successful. There were more Commodore 64 units sold than any other uh, computer uh, since then. Right. So, but you know, that was this amazing thing because you could get this computer and hook it up to, you know, your television and you you, learning how to code. Um, But when I think about, the the 80s because you know the personal computer isn't commercially available to the public until you know the very early 80s you know before that computers were primarily for uh, you know big industry you know government kind of things so yep. the personal computer comes out uh, in the early 80s and I remember you know talking to my parents and my dad and go oh we gotta get one of these you know computers in the house and you know, my dad going. You know, what do we need a computer for? You know, as he picks up and sticks his finger in the holes of the telephone to to dial a number, right? Yeah. But you know, when I think about that early, uh, you know, video game. So a lot of I think early video game development was happening in Japan. So you know, with companies like Coleco or Nintendo, um, so you have I think a very specific kind of culture from Japan. But then when I think about how computers were first kind of developed and introduced in the US I don't have any have done haven't done any research on this but I speculate that for the most part a lot of those early computer buyers were middle upper class suburban neighborhoods right so technology wasn't you know at that time period I think shared universally as an American experience. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe that drove that kind of uh, particular demographic into the early technology field. But, you know, when I think about the last 20 years, when it comes to technology and and digital tools, I mean, that's pretty much universal now. So it seems to me like maybe that is a more shared experience in our country than it was, you know, maybe
1: 40 years ago. I definitely see your point there that the, the access to the the technology is is more ubiquitous. I think that it's also important to make a distinction between uh in terms of how people are using the technology. So when you're talking about the eighties and you know, IBM PC, Commodore 64, Amiga, Atari, Apple II, all of that, I think that, you know, when you these were these were platforms where you started them up and you kind of immediately had to start troubleshooting, right? You know, putting in a floppy disk, you're figuring out what, you know, what to connect to what the operating system is, is going into a, you know, a command prompt often where you're having to type in commands to navigate around. Um, and this distinction between, you know, playing a game versus you're know, writing a program in basic, um, or, you know, or just learning how to use the thing is, is not so wide. Um, you know, we're moving more now towards closed systems in which you know our, our devices aren't openable; they're not repairable. Um, we can only install things on them that are approved by the people who sold us the devices, and you know, and there's benefits to that that you know that improves security and reliability and all these kinds of things. And we're able to have very small devices, uh, uh, you know, that we can fit in our pockets and 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 so on. But even if everybody is using these devices, or almost everybody is, um, a relatively few number of people are creating things with the devices, you know, programming them, or you know, or the difference in music between people that are listening to Spotify versus people that are recording their own music, right? So, so, so that divide, I think, is very much still there. And you know, when we when we look from the perspective, my perspective as a as a college educator, we see people come in their first year of college. And some of them have had prior experience, say, you know, they've taken a computer science class in high school, or they were part of a robotics team, or they did, um, you know, or they learned this stuff on their own outside of school. And they come into a first year computer science course, and they're sitting next to people who, sure, they've been using computers their whole lives, but they're digital natives, but they've never programmed before. Um, And the music side you know, we have people that come in. They've been using Able and Live and Fruity Loops. They've you know recorded their own stuff. They you know they have a lot of experience, and people who come in who don't have any of that. Um, you know, you you teach in Gwinnett County, where almost every kid in Gwinnett County in middle school and high school has access to a music technology course, which is incredible. Uh, I can't name any other school district in the country off the top of my head that that, that does that. Um, so not every student has the same opportunities that the students in Gwinnett have and so you know one of our one of the important things for us to do when when kids get to the college level is to make sure um, obviously from the way that we teach that everybody is on a level playing field but the bigger issue is the, the culture that somebody might you know make a comment that's really like a microaggression it's like oh you know Oh, what you know, what language did you learn in, in high school, or what DAW did you u- use when you were in high school, or something like that. And that that embedded at that, it seems like an innocent question, but there's a there's a there's a tacit assumption that's behind that. It's like I had this experience and you didn't, so I'm better prepared for this course, or I'm gonna be more successful here. And so it's it's very hard but very important for us to try to dispel those kinds of myths to. Um, when people come in and to set up classes in a way because because the prior experience is not necessarily a good predictor for future success and so we we want to make sure that we set things up in a way that um, that positions all students to to be successful and to be confident in themselves. The next thing I want to talk about
0: uh, is something that's that's been on a lot of people's minds over the 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 last several months and it seems like it's just exploded uh, you know really like within a, the last year, but it's been around for quite a while actually, and probably misunderstood by most people. And that's the idea of uh, artificial intelligence, AI or ML, uh, you know, machine learning. And most people, you know, when they hear that, I, I think they probably uh, immediately think about, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator movies and, you know, the evil AI that, uh, that uh, the machines are coming to take over. The, the, The first real experience, I guess, I had with AI was actually at the Georgia Tech Lab when I was introduced to Shimon. And I believe that uh, somebody was telling me that Shimon actually has made television appearances and uh, even nationally. So, So Shimon is this robot that is, through machine learning and artificial intelligence, can actually Generate compose music and just to explain, if you can imagine, Shimon plays a marimba, and so if you think about this keyboard instrument, it's uh, and it uses eight mallets at a time. So you know, if you think about two people playing a marimba with four mallets each at the same time. So the mallets move up and down the instrument, and it plays, and it's it's fascinating and it's wonderful. Just tell me a little bit. Uh, about how was Shimon developed? When we talk about machine learning, artificial intelligence, You know what's really happening there?
1: So, well, first, I need to give credit. Shimon is a project by my colleague, Gil Weinberg, uh, who directs the Center for Music Technology at Georgia Tech, which is the umbrella over all the research in music technology on campus. And Shimon, I'm going to forget when it was first developed, late 2000s, early 2010s, somewhere in there, but it's part of a long thread of of research his lab is the robotic musicianship lab and so he's been exploring for most of his career ways that robots and humans can can make music together what shimon is great at at demonstrating and i think is true across all of gill's work again you know that it's so easy to get into kind of hyperbole and you know and, and things that might get headlines like robots are going to replace human musicians you know the you know the life of musicians is is over kill's lab is focused on on the the exact opposite on showing how humans and robots can come together to make music that neither could on their own so you know shimon can do things that a human marimba player could never do it's got more mallets as you said it can play faster it's got you know the motor can go super super fast uh it can you know, it can put into its memory, you know, every piece of music ever composed. You know, it it has a lot of things that it can do. And so, but it does, it works best not when it's playing something that was pre-programmed for it, but when it's playing along with with one or more human musicians. Uh, and so, like, within a combo, it can trade fours, it can listen to what other people are playing, and build on and vary and extend what they're doing that then sparks new ideas amongst the human musicians. Who then kind of you know you know go off of what it's doing and goes back and forth and this, this is a field of machine musicianship that's been around for a long time both the idea that a machine can compose music and also that a machine can improvise music uh, along with a human um you know really uh, i teach a course on the history of electronic music at georgia tech so i i'd like to go back on these long historical digressions but really this goes back to the 1950s so uh in the 1950s there were kind of two threads of work that were happening uh, through the 50s and 60s. There there was uh, a series of initially analog machines, so kind of predecessors to computers, uh, that were being developed to compose music, really with the idea that they were going to compose ad jingles. So the RCA Corporation was working on one. Um, Raymond Scott, a very successful uh, composer of of music for advertising, uh, was working on another and then there was also work on early mainframe digital computers, you know, the ones that take up entire rooms. Uh, and that initial work uh, was happening at the University of Illinois, where researchers were having this, this computer compose string quartets and training it in the rules of, of counterpoint. And then, you know, there's been, other, there's been other phases since then of this work, um, but really the thread has been common since, 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 since then. The idea that computers could create a bunch of not so great music, but that might be good enough to use in background music scenarios. So think nowadays about like the background for a YouTube video or some other kind of place where you need some background music customized to a particular purpose, but uh, that you don't wanna pay royalties on because a computer generated it. I think that obviously we're in another wave of interest in AI music tools because the AI over the last few years has gotten a lot better again. And so we're able to generate uh, music now that sounds better, sounds more convincing, and has this ability uh, to really cross that, cross that threshold into uh, making a lot of people believe that it's real. I, I
0: think some of the fear comes from the idea that,
1: that machines are going to
0: replace humans. But I don't think that whatever the techno- technological development is, that humans are going to stop being creative. I don't think because AI is generating music that humans are going to stop creating
1: music, right? So, so one, another way to think about this, there's different, when we talk about creativity, there's different contexts for calling something creative, right? So is something creative within the context of me, right? Am I doing something that I haven't done before? Is something creative within kind of a generational context? context. That would be the other end of the spectrum. Some radically new uh, approach to, to music that, that starts a whole new style of music that didn't exist before. One of the things to keep in mind, at least about the current generation of AI, is that it's trained on a ton of data. You, know, you talk to Chat GPT; it's trained on the entire internet. You generate music using Google Music LM or something, it's trained on not quite that big of a set of data, but it's, it's trained on a huge data set. And so it's being trained to find connections and weights and, and predict what might come next based on this knowledge of everything that's come before. And that can generate some very convincing results, but those results are not necessarily something new. You know, if we go back to the 1980s and 1990s, you know David Cope and experiments in musical intelligence was very controversial at the time. Uh, he would feed in hundreds or thousands of Bach fugues or, you know, Mozart minuets or something. And then it would generate tons of new ones in that style. And, you know, it came under a lot of criticism in a lot of different ways. Some people were just afraid that a machine was creating this very compelling music. Um, but a lot of people were saying, well, you know, it's not generating anything new. It's just regurgitating you know, variations on a uh, on, on music that's very well known and kind of you know, very well established already. And I think that even if the, the tools have changed and, and what we can do has changed here, we're still in a position where we're recreating things because we're training on a ton of data about what's already out there. And, and so I, I have a hard time seeing how an AI tool is going to on its own uh, usher in a new musical style or a new musical revolution, bring us something that we've never heard before that, that, that starts something big. Um, you know, with a capital C creative. I think that humans working in collaboration with AI might be able to do that. But I don't see these AI tools kind of on their own during something totally new.
0: Right, and it's, you know, what happens with a lot of technology is where the the tech is assisting human creativity or, or or whatever, is that in a lot of ways, the technology kind of takes on the load of Maybe the more mundane tasks that actually freeze the human creator to you know focus more energy on you know the heavily I don't have to worry about uh, you know uh, you know like elevator music, so you know the AI can generate this elevator music that's just background, and so now I can you know as a human creator focus on you know a more advanced kind of level of of creating i guess is am i making sense
1: yeah you are you are making sense so, so there's there's a couple there's a couple things that tie into to your point one one is this idea that technology can uh, enable us to work at increasing levels of abstraction so you know my favorite this is a classic example of this in music but it's my favorite example max matthews you know one of the the kind of the founders of the computer music um, who worked at Bell Labs and developed the very first programming language for music Um, later in his career he became very interested in musical interaction and he developed a tool called the radio baton it looked like two marimba mallets that you held but you didn't and, and you held them over the surface and it sensed the x y and z position of where these mallets were but the demonstrations that you see in these old videos with him are really about enabling people to use those, those ballads to, to perform actually very traditional music in a lot of these cases. You'll see people performing Chopin or Beethoven or, or, or things like that, and it's almost like they're conducting it. Um, but they're very expressive about the timing of mu- the music, about the dynamics, about things like that. And then the computer is doing all these other things, to actually play the notes, and they're working at this higher level of abstraction. Um, so if you think about this from a, a, a compositional perspective, not that EarSketch uses much in the way of AI, but but EarSketch is another way of thinking about the same level of abstraction. Because because in that platform, students are generally not composing music note by note. They're reassembling clips together, and uh, you know, kind of putting putting the clips together in a way that they're creating a uh, you know kind of their own song out of these constituent building blocks that are each a you know, measure or two long. But the 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 other point I want to make is that musicians have a habit of using technologies in ways that. The creators of those technologies did not envision, um, you know, the turntable being the classic example, of course. And so, you know, even if, if some of these AI tools are intended to be used for very specific purposes, I, I think that musicians are going to come up with much better ways to use them that will lead to more interesting results. And, you know, and again, we talked about auto tune earlier, but I think that's a, that's a great example. You know, auto tune was designed to make really bad singers sound slightly less bad, but it became a tool that created a very distinctive sound in its own right. Um, when it was, you know, kind of misused in a way that, that provoked a certain kind of, uh, uh, audio to come out of, out of it. And that to me is much more interesting than fixing intonation for bad singers.
0: Right, right. It, it, it reminds me, um, Google, I think, is very good at this, at creating something and going, okay, this is a tool we've made. We're not really sure what the tool can be used for. So they'll just throw it out there and let people start playing with it. And, you know, the humans are pretty good at, you know, exactly what you said, figuring out, you know, how to use it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, Google Glass, and I actually talked uh, to a couple of people who were, because uh, thinking back to that, like it was a big Twitter thing where, you know, Google invented this Google Glass. And then on Twitter, it was, you know, hashtag if I had Google Glass. And then you could, you know, put in what you would use Google Glass for. And then they would convince you that you were the lucky person chosen to be one of their beta testers. And, you know, for this honor, you got to, pay for your own plane ticket to fly out to the West coast and then pay them for one of these devices that you could use. And, you know, they were going to get all of this uh, data about how it's used. And after a few years, um, you, I heard stories that even people in Google who were developing Google glass got to a point where they just refused to, to wear it. Mm. And then, you know, it kind of, it kind of went nowhere. I, I mentioned, uh, Rick Beato has a a YouTube channel that's, that's awesome. And he was talking about this AI thing. And one of the comments he made was, you know, technology never goes backwards. And that struck me at first, but then at the same time, kind of thinking about this Google glass thing, I thought, well, it doesn't go backwards, but it does sometimes just run into
1: dead ends. I think, I think also sometimes technology doesn't meet the moment. So Google glass, I'm, I, I don't know a ton about Google glass. I never used it, but but my sense with it was that it it was the right technology at the wrong time, perhaps that um, you know the uh, the experience was was a little bit um, imperfect, but also that we as a, a society were not ready to wear this thing that was going to really uh, kind of transform our experience of the entire world around us. Uh, you know, we have another wave of augmented reality happening right now. There's different ways that's been successful in in the audio domain. People have earbuds in their ears constantly, and we don't seem to have an issue. It's not just listening to music anymore, but these earbuds also, um, you know, you push a button and you can speak to Siri or Google Assistant or whatever. um, And, you know, and and interact with your world. So so in the audio domain, we seem to be much more willing right now to put, you know, to to have this interface between our senses and, and the world. Than, uh, than we do in the visual domain, but I'm not sure, you know, if Google Glass, you know, version two or you know whatever the next thing is, they'll never call it that again because they don't want, you know, they don't want to associate with a failed product. But um, or even like if you think about another example that goes further back in time, before Apple came out with the the iPhone, they came out with the Newton which was one of the biggest product failures of, I think of the 1990s, people made fun of it. The technology was not there. They, they, you know, the handwriting recognition was awful. It required a stylus, all this kind of stuff. Um, it was, you know, it was the the right idea, but at the wrong time. And it didn't have the connectivity because cellular networks were not at that stage yet. Uh, but a decade later, the iPhone came out. They learned from the mistakes. The technology had advanced to a point. Um, you know, we were used to to using these personal digital assistants like, you know, Palm Pilots and Blackberries and stuff like that. So the, the time was right, both in terms of the technology and also in terms of our, our cultural expectations to, uh, to have the, that device take off.
0: Right. And, and that's an important point. I was talking um, on one of the other podcast episodes with Chris Rickwood, who is a composer A music composer, but he all of his music he composes for video games, Um, and he got into the industry in the mid '90s, which was kind of the ground floor of video game sound, where we were sort of leaving that uh, eight bit um, sounds to becoming more symphonic. And and, you know, he made uh, you know the comment that you know as a musician there were things that he wanted to do. But the technology just wasn't ready yet. Whereas, you know, he said today, uh, you know, now the computers or the the consoles can, can handle it if he wants to. You know, he said when he started, I couldn't use a WAV file, you know, an uncompressed file, because I had to be very conscientious about how much memory it was going to take. He said, whereas today, you know, I can drop in 30 tracks of a very symphonic kind of score and, you know, the computer doesn't blink. So the technology and the ideas and the innovation don't always line up, but I know a number of times uh, different things that we've talked about today, you know, you've mentioned, uh, you know, we had this idea and it, it just, it was terrible and it collapsed. And, but the thing about it is, you know, that's such a critical piece of discovery of creation. Right. So even with my students that are creating music, I tell them you have to be, you have to be willing to make a lot of bad music. If you're ever going to learn how to make good music.
1: It's, it's so important that our students learn how to fail and that failure is a, a good thing. You know, it's, this is one thing that I think that, 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 startup culture in Silicon Valley probably got right, you know, fail, fail frequently, fail fast and kind of learn from those experiences, um, but so many students are 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 scared of taking risks because they you know they're worried about getting anything less than an A in a course, and it takes a lot of work as educators, I think, to create a space where students feel uh, comfortable taking those risks and failing, and, and feel like it's 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 okay or even even good to fail sometimes.
0: So as we're sitting here uh, talking and looking at the. Looking at the clock, and I can't believe we've already been talking for you know an hour. You know, first of all, let me just say how much I really appreciate you, uh, you know, taking the time to talk to me today because I, I know you're very busy. And I I usually have like a group of questions I like to close the podcast with, but there's still s- so much more I would love to discuss. So I don't know if you might be willing, mm-hmm. but let's. Maybe see if we can find another time and we can continue the conversation with a part two. Yeah, sure. So rather than extending the time anymore now, we'll, I'll, I'll come to those closing questions next time because it's been a wonderful, a wonderful conversation. And so uh, more to discuss and uh, we'll promise a part two that will come along, not too, hopefully not too long from now. So, but yes, Dr. Freeman, uh, Georgia Tech, the chair of the music department and music technology. Again, thanks so much for being with me today.
1: My pleasure. I look forward to continuing this conversation. I've really enjoyed it so far. Great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Jason Friedman, and
0: I look forward to continuing the conversation in the near future. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Friedman and the music technology program at Georgia Tech, check out the notes for this episode to find the links to the websites mentioned in our conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends and colleagues. Subscribing and leaving positive reviews are a huge help in boosting and promoting the podcast. In addition to this podcast, there are links to my website, YouTube channel, blog, social media handles, and Discord server in the episode notes also. I hope you'll be on the lookout for the next episode of the podcast, where I'll be having a conversation with Megan oconnor Vince. Megan teaches at Barnstable High School in Hyannis, Massachusetts, where she teaches jazz band, hip-hop, and music technology. She is presented at regional and national conferences on her innovative hip hop curriculum that has also been published as a featured unit in Music First Classroom, one of the most widely used platforms for delivering music education content online and in the classroom. Until then, this is Heath with the Music Technology Teacher Network. Advocate, support,
1: inspire, create. Network. 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 Network.